All right, well, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, we give you praise for who you are as the sovereign ruler of the universe, the creator. Everything works exactly as you have ordained it to. And now we ask that you would help us as we look at your word, that we would be able to understand it uh, more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so my goal is tonight to try and get all the way through First and Second Samuel. Samuel. The reason being is because we're going to have like almost a month break here. And I was like, I can't split the story in two, right? That, that's a challenge. So we're going to try and get all the way through. Now, you're probably wondering why are we skipping over Ruth, right? Because we go Judges, Ruth in our Bibles, First and Second Samuel. And the reason is, is because, remember, we're following the outline in Jesus' Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Ruth is considered part of the writings. It's actually the first book we'll cover when we get to the writings. And really, what Ruth is going to do is it's going to tell us what a faithful follower of Yahweh looks like. And that's what the writings will do, okay? So uh, the time frame for Ruth is probably somewhere in this time frame of, that we're in now, but it has a different purpose than just recounting the historical narrative of the nation of Israel. And really, that's what's going on. Remember, we're in the former prophets, and they are recounting this is the history of the nation of Israel. So Joshua conquest, Judges was really bleak and dark. Uh, as um, Betty said to me last week, I don't like Judges. <laughs> and I think there's a, it, 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 by that, it's just, it's a difficult book. There's a lot of of sadness, uh, a lot of sin, things like that. You remember the book of Judges ended with that repeated refrain, there is no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel, and so this is what happens. And that sets up for us what we are introduced to in the book of Samuel. Now, again, the author of the book, we're not sure who it was. Samuel obviously probably recorded portions of it, um, but he dies at in like chapter 22, uh, his death is recorded. So he obviously did not write about the reign of David or things like that. So again, there's probably a couple of people that were involved in the compilation of this book. Now we are moving in from the period of the judges into the period of the monarchy. So the period of the judges lasted about 400 years in Israel's history. The period of the monarchy is going to last about 460 years. And then where we're headed is the downfall of the nation and its exile. Okay, so that's kind of the, the trajectory that we're, we're headed, headed on. Okay? The theme and the structure of the book, the story of the book, is how Israel came to have its first king, and then the dynasty of kings that would follow after. So how it became a monarchy. The theme of the book is the Lord's exaltation of the humble and his tearing down of the proud and the mighty. So we will see the rise of Samuel and David, the Lord exalting the humble, the unlikely, uh, and those who are not outwardly mighty or significant. On the other side, through the demise of Eli the priest and his sons and then ultimately Saul, we see the Lord tear down the proud, the wicked, and those who outwardly appear to have the right stuff, right? As we're going to see, Saul looks the part of a king, but he's not the kind of king Israel needs, okay? There's two ways uh, that you can kind of structure your outline of the book. The first is uh, the, the book is held together by three prayers, so in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, there's a prayer by Hannah, which we'll cover in a little bit. And it really does kind of set an outline for the book and the themes that you'll see. And then there's a prayer in the middle, which is David's lament for Saul and Jonathan over their, their death. And he, that prayer brings out specific themes that Hannah brings out. And then the book closes with David's prayer of praise and adoration to the Lord for his deliverance and protection. So you can structure it around those um, 
three uh, uh, prayers, uh, and really smart scholars do that and make it more clear than I could. So I would rather follow the outline of the major characters and how the story focuses in on major characters. The first one is Samuel, chapters 1 through 8. Chapters 9 through 15, Saul. And then in chapters 16 through 31, so half of the book of 1 Samuel, you see Saul and David together, right? We switch back and forth. And then all of 2 Samuel focuses on David himself. So let's walk through the book. Let's look at the first eight chapters. Uh, Try here. And we're just going to talk about Samuel. Um, The first two chapters are his early years. Um, as you read through this account, you, you understand how the birth of Samuel came about in chapter 1. Uh, the birth of Samuel was a miraculous birth. The Lord opens the womb of Hannah, who could not have a child. Um, she was the object of scorn and ridicule by Peniah, uh, Hannah's husband's other wife, so he had two wives. Um, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Hannah, Hannah prays in this scene. Eli thinks that she's drunk. Um, but then he says, go home, you will have a child. And then notice that phrase in in verse 19, the Lord remembered. Uh, We've seen this before, like in Exodus, the Lord remembered his people and he delivered them. Remembrance, this kind of language is not that the Lord forgot, but that it is the time to act is now, right? So at just the right time, even as we were thinking this morning, as Pastor Jess was bringing out, um, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son. In the fullness of time, God brought forth Samuel, Right, to serve a specific purpose in the nation of Israel. And look at chapter 2. Um, I'm not going to read through this whole chapter just for time's sake, but just you can look again at these verses. Verses 1 through 3, Hannah's praying and she's declaring the greatness of Yahweh. She's saying, there's none like Yahweh for what he has done for me and for the nation. And then she says, therefore my tongue derides my enemies. Uh, and perhaps she's speaking of Paniah, the the uh, other wife who was mocking her because she could have no children, right? Um, Verses four through eight, uh, we see what Yahweh has done for Hannah is what he has done for the nation. You notice that, especially in verses six and seven, where he says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So this is a theme we will see in the book and it's a theme we see in the life of the nation of Israel. And then verses 8 through 10, notice Yahweh's cosmic rule and this theme of the reversal of fortunes will extend to the ends of the earth, right? So verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, right? So his reign is extended over the whole of the earth because that's the goal that God, his glory is seen around the whole world. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Okay, so here's a really interesting thing, right? A a prophetic word, right, about a coming king, something that we'll see. Uh, Stephen Dempster says, summarizing this poem, it begins with a renewed Hannah, but by its end there is a vision of a renewed cosmos. This is to be celebrated with delirious joy that results from the birth of a child, and it is the birth of children leading up to a particular person, a king no less, that will help Israel and the world reach their destiny. So you can see in this poem, there is kind of a structure given for how the book will unfold. In chapter 2, this after uh, Hannah's prayer, we're introduced to Eli. He's the priest, 
And we're going to move more specifically, though, into the focus on Samuel at this point. Uh, so Samuel, of course, is given to the Lord. Hannah says, uh, I, will, I will give him uh, to the Lord to serve in the, the tabernacle. Eli was the priest and a judge in Israel, and he and his sons, his sons especially, were worthless men. And so it describes the kind of characters that they were not the kind of characters that Israel Israel needed. So it says in chapter 2, they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. Chapter 3, it also says the word of the Lord in these days was rare. So it's, it's very much following along the theme of judges, right? That the spiritual state of the nation is quite bleak, okay? Um, a man from God shows up in chapter 3 and tells Eli, uh, your days are numbered and your house will be cut off. You because of your sin and your unfaithfulness. But if you notice uh, in chapter 2, well, this is actually in chapter 2 that it happens. Notice verse 35, right? There's, there's a hope that is given here. Eli's house is going to be cut off, but the Lord will raise up a faithful priest who will go in and out forever before the Lord. Well, ultimately, of course, what does the writer of Hebrews tell us who Jesus is? our great high priest, ever interceding for us. So here we have this, this hope of this eternal high priest who would come. Um, we see in chapter 3, the Lord communicating his word to Eli through Samuel. So again, here, just this picture, right? Here's the priest, and the Lord's not talking to him. He's talking to a boy, and he is communicating his word to that. Um, there's, there's a contrast drawn, I think, in these chapters between Samuel, who is growing in favor and stature with the Lord, and Eli's sons who are wicked and continuing to continue in their way. One thing that jumped out to me as I was reading through these chapters, I think there is, um, in Israel's history, the three most important offices were prophet, priest, and king. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills all three of those offices, right, as our as the prophet, as the priest, and as king. And I think we see those three things all typified here, right? So one, Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, uh, talking about the, the king that will arise, the exaltation of his horn, uh, which is a, a military term. Uh, you see the promise of a priest who would go in and out before the Lord forever. And then uh, the word of the Lord coming through Samuel, that office of the prophet, is one that Jesus will come and fulfill as well. So just I think you see some, some neat uh, foreshadowings and types given in these chapters, uh, especially as we're going to move into David and then ultimately to Jesus. Yes? Yes. Yeah. There we go. Thank you for bringing that in. All right. Chapters four through seven, I've entitled The Ark of the Lord. Uh, and and if you think about the, the depravity of the nation where it's at, one might ask the question, well, has the Lord abandoned Israel? All right, uh, things, are, things are pretty bleak. Um, but here in these chapters, we see that he has not abandoned Israel and that he must always be worshiped as he has prescribed and he is not to be trifled with. Okay, so in chapter four, we see that he is not a good luck charm. Um, you remember that the, the, dwell, the, the dwelling place of God was in the tabernacle, specifically on the ark, in between the two cherubim, on the mercy seat. That is where he said, I will meet with you. Okay, so the presence of God dwells in that place. So Eli's sons get the idea that as, as the nation is going to battle, that they should take the ark with them 
to give them victory. They think this will, will guarantee them success. However, they are killed, and the ark is taken captive, right? So uh, it, is, it is not a good luck charm. Chapter 5, we see a uh, fantastic scene, right? As the Philistines take the ark of the covenant into their temple of their god Dagon, and he is humiliated before Yahweh. He is, his statue falls down two times, and his arms and his head are lopped off. He is summarily executed by the Lord. And then the Lord sends plagues on Israel, or on the Philistines, so they think, wow, we can't have this ark in our midst. We're going to send it back to Israel. So that's what they do. And so in chapter 6, the ark comes back to the nation of Israel. The men of Israel rejoice when it comes back. But look at verses 19 through 20, and you see that the return of the ark is deadly for them, right? It says, The Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Okay, so Yahweh's not to be trifled with. He is to be worshipped in the manner that he has prescribed, and they have not done that in these scenes. Chapter 7, we get kind of a uh, uh, recounting or... uh, it's, a, it's a, actually a covenant renewal scene in chapter 7, but we see, we see that Samuel was a faithful man who judged Israel, uh, served Yahweh, led them well. And so Israel was a, had, had success while he was their prophet and a judge. He, I don't think he is a judge in the sense of the judges from judges, right? Because he wasn't a military leader. Right? He was more of a, a spiritual leader, okay? So that leads us into chapter 8 and the people's demands for a king. Now, if you notice in verse 2 and in verse 4, Samuel's sons were not godly like he was, right? They were worthless characters, kind of like Eli's sons as well. And so this seems to have increased the desire in the nation to have a king. They see, well, Samuel, you're good, but your sons are not reputable men, so we don't want to follow them. Now, we've got to understand the request for a king was not wrong. You remember in Deuteronomy 17, actually, and turn back there real quick, because this is going to be key as we go forward. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Um, So uh, uh, the promise of a king has been prophesied. You go uh, back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? That, That the Lord tells Abraham, kings will come from you. And then, you know, uh, Judah, uh, Jacob's blessing of Judah promises that a scepter will arise, and Balaam, his prophecy, affirms that as well, that there will be a king who will arise in Israel. So in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, this language we will hear very soon, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. 
And he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so just think, this is the, like the core document for what a king in Israel was to be like. Every king is to be held to this standard, okay? So as we get to this, the Lord said, okay, if you're going to have a king, this is the kind of king you need. This is what he is, he is to be like. So the, the nation comes to Samuel, and they say, we want a king. And we see in verse 6 that this request displeased Samuel, but the Lord instructs Samuel to give them a king, to go ahead and anoint a king. And so Samuel tells them of the disadvantages of having a king, verses 10 through 18, we see this. Uh, and, and again, while their request was not wrong, we do see there was a problem, all right? And there in, the, Lord, the Lord points it out, right, when he says, um, uh, verse, uh, verse 7, they have, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So the Lord knows that the, the request for a king isn't what's wrong. The request is they don't want Yahweh as their, their king. They have rejected him. Um, they have despised him. Jim Hamilton says, rather than desiring a human king through whom Yahweh will exercise his power and authority, the people reject Yahweh. Just as their ancestors did, the people commit idolatry by trusting in something other than Yahweh. Rather than being a kingdom of priests, they want to be like all the nations. Okay, so that's, this is the problem. They think that a, a, a human king will be their true deliverer, not Yahweh. Okay, so that leads us to Saul in chapter 9, and his, uh, he is the focus of the story for the next uh, six chapters, and we all know the end of the story, I think, right? Saul fails as a king. He's not the one who is promised an eternal throne in the nation of Israel. Um, and I think the author of Samuel, when he is writing the history of Saul, is pointing out that Saul was the kind of king the nation wanted, but he's not the Deuteronomy 17 kind of king. Okay, I think that's kind of the overall thing. So he looks the part of a king. He's tall and handsome. Um, what does it say? Uh, verse 2 of chapter 9, There is not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he is a good-looking, strapping dude, right? That's a king. That's what they, they all think. He's a physical giant in the nation of Israel. But you'll never see the people rejoicing over Saul having the kind of characteristics that a king in Israel should, should have. That's not what he is praised for. Um, J.D. Hayes said, Saul fit Israel's desires and motives, large in stature, but weak in character and faith, and he soon proved to be a failure. However, at the same time, we see in like chapter 10, Saul is given all the things he needs to, to be a king. Right? He's anointed by the Lord. The Spirit rushes upon him. He prophesies. There's signs that confirm he has been anointed by the Lord to be the king of Israel. In chapter 11 through chapter 15, we see the reign of Saul. Um, again, as Jim Hamilton says, that from when we are first introduced Saul... Uh, through his reign and then his loss of the kingdom, he's presented as a negative foil for David. Right? He's the exact 
opposite of who David is, and we will, we will see that more clearly. There's two significant events in the reign of Saul that we need to ch- touch on. The first one's in chapter 13. This is Saul's unlawful sacrifice. So Saul uh, goes out to battle the Philistines, and he wants to give us, he, he's going to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and Samuel is delayed in coming, and Saul is uh, eager to get on with the battle because his soldiers are starting to depart. Samuel's not arrived, so he thinks, I'll just go ahead and I'll offer the sacrifice myself. He wasn't supposed to do that, right? Uh, look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Again, go back to Deuteronomy 17 and those, those last verses, right, that say if, if the king keeps the law, if he obeys it, then the Lord would establish his kingdom. And right here we see Saul failing in this. The second event is in chapter 15. Um, in this again, Saul does not obey as he is commanded. He was supposed to go to the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. He was not to leave any animal, any person alive, but he decides to keep the best for himself. So he keeps the best spoil and he spares the king, Agag. And so uh, again, Samuel comes to him and, and Saul is, hey, look at this. You know, we, we did what, what you said, and Samuel's response is, what is the bleeding, bleating of sheep that I hear, right? And, well, I saved the best. And Samuel's response, verses 22 and 23, uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king, right? So Saul loses the kingdom, the opportunity to have it uh, established forever. Um, Saul, we see, confesses that he is wrong, but his, his confession is because he wants to get the kingdom back. That's why he confesses that what he's, what he's done. So in this episode, we learn this key truth about the character of God. He does not change his mind. Look at verse 29. And this is, uh, I, I want to just spend a minute on this because there are certain passages of Scripture that are challenging for us because we have finite minds. And I think this is one of them. So look at verse 20, 29 of chapter 15. The glory of Israel, so that's the Lord, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, the, the, the question that often pops in our mind is if you look back at verse 11, it says that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, how's this? We get two seemingly contradictory things. How can the Lord regret and not regret? And really what we're, we're seeing here is the doctrine of immutability, okay? And I think I put a definition in your notes. Immutability is God's perfect unchangeability in his essence, character, purpose, and promises. That comes from, from John MacArthur's systematic theology, okay? What we need to understand is that God possesses affections, right? He is, he is grieved by sin. Uh, so when Saul sins, he is, he, he is grieved by that. 
However, God's actions, his emotions, and again, this is MacArthur says, they are deliberate expressions of his holy disposition. That means that God's actions are not like human emotions, right? When, when the Lord regrets, it's not the same regret as we have regret. And the reason why is because the Lord knows all things perfectly, right? He's not surprised by the actions of Saul, okay? Um, so this language of the Lord regretting, I think, is, is figurative language to help us understand God's changes of disposition or action. Does that make sense? Okay. He's not reacting to something that he didn't know was going to happen, that he did not ordain to happen. Right? So he's not, not changing. He's sovereign all th- over all things. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he's decreed what will happen, and it will happen. Therefore, he is never surprised by human action. So when we read of God regretting, like he says in, in chapter 15, verse 11, we need to understand that that takes place in the context of God's knowing and ordaining all things. Okay? I know that's a lot to try and like swallow right now, uh, but I want to just want to touch on this. One last quote here from MacArthur again. He says, the bottom line is this. All God's acts that might be perceived as changes are eternally foreknown and predetermined. God does not change his mind or regret like a man changes his mind or regrets. Okay? Some things we will never fully wrap our minds around, but we do understand that. God's actions and our actions are not the same, okay? So these two things are uh, the demise, lead to the demise of Saul's reign. It's basically over at this point. And so we see from this point forward the downward trajectory of the reign of Saul. So in chapter 16, we're introduced to the hero of the story. All right, here comes David. Um, he is now the, the focus, so we see his anointing and preparation Um, And in these chapters, we see clearly that David is all the things Saul should have been and was not, okay? Um, You notice David, or Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and he sees all of Jesse's sons, and he thinks, ooh, this one, this one should be the king. But what does he say in verse 7? The Lord, don't look on the outward appearance. For the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance, he looks at the heart, all right, so this is, again, the opposite of Saul. What was, it, what was said of Saul? He's tall, dark, and handsome. Right? He's strong. He's a, he's a mighty man. But David is not like that, not outwardly like Saul. He has the heart that the Lord uh, desires. Chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. Again, we're familiar. I think the, the important thing we need to see with this is that David is a warrior who believes Yahweh and gets the victory for him. Verse 46, you see that especially, like, I'm fighting for the Lord. He has delivered you into my hands, right? He believes the Lord, and that's contrasted with Saul. If you go back to chapter 14, there's a a battle where Saul uh, is pursuing the enemy, and he won't allow his soldiers to eat until he says, until I get vengeance on my enemies, right? He's out to battle for himself. David is out to battle for Yahweh, okay? So that's a real, real distance, in chapter 18, you see David gaining, gaining favor in the sight of Saul's family. So his son Jonathan and his daughter Michael, he marries, uh, marries Michael. And then he gains favor in the sight of the people. So this is where uh, the women are singing of David and Saul. Saul has struck his thousands. David has struck his ten thousands. Right? So he's, he's really gaining popularity in the nation. He's a well-known figure at this point. Okay? 
Uh, and then in chapters 18 through the end of the book, I called this David and Saul frenemies, right? Because they're friends and enemies. Or enemies, but you get the idea, right? There's, there's some relation there. Uh, notice chapter 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. The Lord is establishing the throne of David, okay? And Saul recognizes that. Verse 10 of chapter 18 tells us Saul has a harmful spirit from the Lord. Now, these final chapters through the end of the book really are going to record mainly for us David's fleeing from Saul. Saul, again, recognizes that David is uh, rising and he doesn't like that. That's a, that's a threat to his power, so he's going to do what he can to hold on to it. So he's going to try and kill David. So his jealousy seeks his downfall. In chapters 19 through 21, we see the Lord preserving David uh, in a couple of different ways. First of all, he preserves him from the anger of Saul uh, when he tries to kill him. He preserves him through the friendship of Jonathan. So uh, Jonathan protects David by telling him of his father's disposition towards him. Uh, He provides, the Lord preserves him with food from the altar. This is in chapter 21, um, where he goes and he eats the bread that was for the the priests alone to eat. That normally shouldn't have been something that was done. Uh, Jesus brings this out in uh, one of the Gospels, in Matthew somewhere. Do you remember, Aaron, where it is? You, somebody can look it up. Jesus points this out. The, the point is that David was on a holy mission from the Lord and had the right to eat from this. And so Jesus uses that same uh, application that he is on a holy mission as well. And then in chapter 21, the Lord preserves him by feigning madness before the Philistines. So he goes and the drool is running down his beard before the Philistines. And they're like, is this really the great warrior? He seems like he's Looney Tunes, right? So the Lord preserves him from death through his act. What we see in chapter two is that, or 22 is that Saul is not like David. He is vindictive and vengeful. So the priest that aided David by giving him bread, what does Saul do? He goes and kills them all, right? Um, in chapter 23, Saul, the, the residents of the city of Kaliah uh, were being attacked. Saul's responsibility was he should have gone and defended them, but he doesn't. Who does? David, right? So David is doing the things that Saul should have been doing. We see uh, David, uh, the Lord sparing David and Saul from each other, okay? Chapter 23, verse 27, this really stood out to me. Uh, the providence of God here, uh, the, the, Saul is pursuing David and just about has him. And then providentially, the Philistines attack the land of Israel, and Saul has to stop his pursuit of David to go and, and attack and, and defend the nation, right? It, in the providence of God, he brought the Philistines against the land at just the right time in order to spare the life of David, right? So the Lord is, is preserving, preserving him. In chapter 24, David has the opportunity to take Saul's life. And what does he say? I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So here again, you have such a contrast. David is the Lord's anointed. Saul is as well. Uh, Saul wants to take the life of the anointed, and David will not do it. Okay, so we have a real contrast in these. Um, chapter 25, I'm not going to go into all of this, but here we just see that, that the Lord restrains David from blood guilt by not killing Nabal, who's a fool. And David is 
angered by him and is ready to kill him. But Abigail, Nabal's wife, comes and says, don't do this. Don't, uh, don't be guilty of, the, of his blood. Um, chapter 6, again, David spares Saul's life. He has the opportunity to take it, and he does not. Um, and then in chapter 28, an interesting scene where you see further the distancing of Saul and David. Uh, Saul is, has no relationship with the Lord, and so what does he do? He goes to a medium, right, to a, a witchcraft, and uh, to find out where, what's going on. Uh, he's, he's troubled by the Philistines here, and so uh, he goes and visits this medium of Endor, and Samuel visits Saul. And so Saul is quite terrified by this. But we see, again, just the, the real stark contrast between these two. Samuel tells Saul through this medium that he will die in battle. Uh, so, again, the contrast. Saul is going to demon to get his information. David is in communion with the Lord. So in chapter 31, then, we see the end of the reign of Saul. He dies in battle. Jonathan also is struck down there as well. And at the hand of an Amalekite, one that he should not, that he should have, should not have spared the Amalekites, but he did. Which I didn't get to mention my favorite, one of my favorite verses, uh, Agag the king thinks he's going to survive, and it says that Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Wow, that's great. This is Pastor Jesus. That's TVMA, right? Yeah, right there. All right, let's see if we can run through 2 Samuel here real quickly. Um, Mark 2.26. Okay, David eating the holy bread. All right, you can go look that up and see those connections uh, there. So in, as we move into 2 Samuel, again, this is, actually, this is all one book. In our Bible, it's divided into two because originally the scrolls, they couldn't contain it all in one, so they split it. Uh, down, but it's actually one book, so that's why we're trying to cover it all in one. And of course, it picks up right at the end of First Samuel after the death of Saul. Okay, so Saul has died, and what we see here is that again, this this book opens with a lament from David over Saul and Jonathan. Again, what a contrast! Here, Saul has been pursuing David's life constantly. I mean, years of his life he has now spent running from Saul, and he laments over the death of Saul and Jonathan. Um, Jim Hamilton again says, the song at the opening of 2 Samuel, David's lament for Saul and Jonathan, is the noble reaction of a needy one who has been raised up to the death of the proud Saul who has been put down. The reversal promised in Hannah's song is honored and commemorated in David's lament. Right, so that's what we see we going, on, going on here. Now, as the story continues to unfold, Saul has died, and we have now a, uh, a monarchical conundrum. Right? Uh, there's two kings in Israel. So David is made king over his tribe, which is, question just to get you interactive, what tribe is David from? Judah, right? So he is a made king over Judah, and Ishbosheth is Saul's son, and he's made king over the rest of Israel. Right? So normally continue in succession. Um, so, and I did, I did think about this too. There might be a little bit of foreshadowing in this as well, right? That you have a king in Judah and a king over the rest of Israel because that's going to happen with the division of the kingdom in just two generations, okay? Uh, what it says in chapter three is that there's a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. The house of David grows stronger 
and the house of Saul becomes weaker because the Lord is with David. He is the one who is the rightful king. The first four chapters are all filled with uh, political intrigue and murder and treason as um, the, the commander of Ishbosheth's army is going to align with David, but then he is murdered by David's right-hand man, the commander of his army. And so there's a lot of, uh, yeah, political intrigue, murder, and treason, right? That's kind of what happens in these chapters. Uh, in chapter 4, we see Ishbosheth murdered. He is the king over Israel. These guys served under Saul. They, they murder Ishbosheth. They come to David and they say, hey, we have just killed the king. Uh, will you give us an award, basically, right? Make us uh, your right-hand man. But David uh, understands that's not how the kingdom is to become mine. That's not how I'm going to rise to power through murder and intrigue and treason. So he kills these guys for their murdering of, of Ishbosheth. He says in chapter 4, verse 11, you killed a, a righteous man in his bed. So this is not the way that the, his kingdom is to be established. In chapter 5 through chapter 10, we do see the throne of David established. So Ishbosheth dies, and then all Israel recognizes David as king. Which you do think about, like, the Lord uses the evil actions of these men to establish David's king, kingdom, but yet David is innocent of it, right? He did not participate in these things, okay? But this is what the Lord has done. Um. So he is anointed king, and this marks the beginning of his 33-year reign. Chapter 5, verse 4 says that, that he reigned over all Israel for 33 years. Prior to that, he reigned over Judah for seven years, so a total of 40 years of reigning. Now, this is an important point, I think, to, to understand. David's ascension to the rightful place of ruling, the, the author of 1 Samuel has been very careful to point out the Lord did this, right? That's why his executing the men who murdered Ishbosheth is so important because it's showing his righteousness. He has not uh, gained the throne through manipulation, through murder, through treason. He didn't even take the life of Saul when he had the opportunity to do so, okay? So the Lord has put David into the place that he, he has. Chapter 5, we see David going and establishing Jerusalem as the capital city. Up to this point, the city of Jerusalem has not even been under the control of the Israelites. This is the first time they actually take this place. It's a, it's a more central location for them to rule from. Um, it's significant in biblical history for a number of reasons. Uh, it's the one that I would draw the first comparison to is it's established on two mountains, one of which is Mount Moriah. What happened at Mount Moriah? Abraham and Isaac, right? The sacrifice of Isaac that the Lord provided a ram in its place. So there's significant things there. Um, uh, Melchizedek, the priest, was priest of Salem. Salem is another name for Jerusalem. So there, it's a significant place in, uh, biblical, in the biblical text prior to it being established as uh, the capital of Israel. Uh, it is named the City of David. It's also known as Zion. Um, and it, it's higher in elevation, so that's why they're always saying, like, let us go up to Zion, okay? Um, we see David in chapter 5, verse 11, says that the, as his, his kingdom is established, other kings notice. So the king of Tyre notices that David is established as king, and he builds him a house. Chapter 6, 
David brings uh, the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. This is important because if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, half of that description of a king is all about how they were to have the law direct them, right? You should have a copy of the law. You should follow it. So worship, right worship, is essential for a Israelite king to rule well. So here he is bringing the place where the presence of God would come and dwell to the capital city. This is really important. However, we see uh, disaster, right, with Uzzah reaching out, touching the ark, and is struck dead. Um, Here, Stephen Dempster said, David is reminded of the identity of the real king in Israel, a God who cannot be domesticated or managed for political reasons, right? Eli's sons thought they could do that. If David, I don't think he did, but if he he might have thought that, he learns he can't, can't do that. So finally, though, he brings the, uh, he, he makes the proper preparations and he brings the ark into the capital city. And this is a privilege that Yahweh grants. Remember, the Lord will choose the dwelling place that he will allow his presence to be. So for the Lord to allow David to have the ark in Jerusalem is a privilege. It's not a right, if I can use that, that term. So that leads us to chapter 7, and this is one of the most important chapters in your Old Testament, and this is the Lord's covenant with David, okay? And this is very similar to uh, what we see extensions of the Abrahamic covenant here, and we see extensions of the Mosaic covenant, and we see uh, a promise ultimately of what will come about in the new covenant, okay? So this is a a really central covenant. Notice verses 1 and 2. Uh, David's zeal for Yahweh, his love for the Lord, leads him to want to build a house. He says, I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark does not. It, do, it, 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 is, in a, it is in a tent. Um, so the Lord responds to David's request, but not in the way that he anticipated. And you can see that in verses uh, 4 through 17. For time's sake, I'm not going to read all of this, but I'll, I'll point some things out to you. Basically, the Lord says, I, you're not going to build me a house to live in, David, but I'm going to build you a house. And by that, I mean a dynasty, right? Your throne will be established forever. Now, was Saul's throne established forever? No. There was a promise made. If you walk in my ways, I will establish your throne forever. But he lost that, okay? And now the Lord is coming in saying to you, David, I will establish your throne forever. Your sons will sit on the throne of Israel forever, okay? So a couple of things that we see in this this passage, and I'll just point these verses out and you can look at the text. First, there's a reminder of Yahweh's sovereign hand of protection over David in verses 8 and 9. Yahweh has made David into the king. We've seen that clearly. He has raised him up. He has established him. He has protected him. He has exalted him. And now he's going to make his name great. The Lord will make David known amongst the nations. And this follows with that that promise made to Abraham. What did the Lord say to Abraham? I will make your name great. So when the Lord chooses to, to bless his people, he does all the blessing. Okay? Secondly, notice that through David, Israel will experience the blessing of rest in the land. So verses 10 through 11, uh, you will have rest from all your enemies. That's what the Lord, Lord promises. And this also is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant because in that covenant, what did the Lord promise to Abraham? 
specific land to go and dwell in. And so every time you read about rest, the nation of Israel having rest for a period of time, it's drawing us back, one, to that promise to Abraham, but also that, that Edenic promise of rest, which ultimately we find our fullest and finalist rest in, in Christ. Third, uh, the Lord says that rather than David building him a house, the Lord will build David's house. So he's going to give him a royal dynasty. And David's son Solomon, his kingdom will be established forever. And then after Solomon, Rehoboam, his kingdom will be established forever. It will not be taken away. Okay? Um, all the future kings of Israel are to be from the line of David. Notice in verse 16, this is an incredible promise. And in verse 15 as well, the Lord promises he will never take away his steadfast love as he did with Saul. I will not take it away from your, uh, from your descendants. Uh, Dempster again says, This Davidic covenant establishes and confirms a relationship with God and David in which David is regarded as a son and God as a father. Even if David's sons sin, they themselves will be punished and chastised, but the mercy of God will never be removed from the house or from his line. Okay, so what a, what a blessing, all of grace, that David's house would be bestowed with this wonderful gift. And then finally, the last aspect is that David is instructed that he will not be the one that will build the temple, his son Solomon will. He is, a, uh, as David will say later on, uh, he is a man of war, and so he is not able to do this, this task. And just like, just like we see in the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord promises great things to David, and all he does is believe. Just as Abraham, the Lord said, I will do all these things to you, and what's Abraham's response? He believed and was counted to him as righteousness. The same thing happens with David. David responds with a wonderful prayer at the second half of chapter 7, and you can go and read that on, on your own. But he is just humbled by this. He worships. He understands this is a, a marvelous thing that the Lord has done for him. Um, chapters 8 and 10, well, 8, 9, and 10, you see uh, David's kingdom reach its zenith, right? So he has more victories recorded in chapter 8. Chapter 9, he shows kindness to Meshibapheth. Mesh- yeah. yeah. You say it, right? Meshivatheth. Meshivatheth, right? There we go. Uh, so th- this is a, a grandson of Saul. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, Saul, when, I think it was the last time David had the opportunity to kill him, he says, do me a favor and don't wipe my name out from the land of Israel. And s- David doesn't do that, right? Uh, some kings, right, if you were vindictive, you'd come in and do that. Hey, any descendant, <laughs> off with their head. Well, here's... M, let's just call him M, right? Uh, he, is, he is lame, and David shows, shows him kindness. Again, just a contrast between David and Saul, the kind of men they were. Uh, chapter uh, 10, again, more uh, victory for, for David. So that's the, the pinnacle, I guess we could say, right, of David's reign. The, the kingdom is expanded to great heights. So chapter 11 it all comes crashing down, in a sense, right? So we're introduced to the story of David and Bathsheba, which we are familiar with. And as Pastor Jess said this morning, it's the dirty laundry being hung out, right? Here's the, the uh, king, a man after God's own heart, who goes and commits adultery and murder and uh, all of these things. He does everything that a Deuteronomy 17 kind of king shouldn't do. All in one chapter. 
But there's a difference between David and Saul. Um, he is repentant, right? Uh, when Nathan comes to him and confronts him over his sin, uh, when he, he realizes he's the man that's, that's done this horrible deed, he responds in that wonderful prayer of confession in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Okay, uh, There is judgment though. Uh, the Lord says that your child that you ha- will have with Bathsheba will die and your house is going to now be filled with warfare. Right, And so that's what the, the rest of the book happens. David is not at war with um, an outside enemy, but it comes from, from within. Um, so we get to chapter 13, and we see trouble in the house of David. A um, number of things happen, but, but the, the short of it is, is that David has okay, a couple wives, and so he has children from these wives, and his son Ammon goes and rapes his sister Tamar. He is lustful for her, and so he goes and rapes her. Then Ammon's, or Tamar's brother Absalom is enraged by this, so he goes and kills Ammon in anger. And, of course, this is, uh, creates some problems, and so Absalom ends up fleeing from, from David's presence because uh, he's, he's, you know, He's just murdered his brother. And so what ends up in chapter 15, uh, Absalom flees, and by chapter 15, he's decided, hey, I think I could be king. And so he, the, the, the nation kind of, he garners some support, I guess we could say, um, and declares himself uh, king. And in these chapters, again, uh, we, we're going to see David fleeing and the Lord preserving him just as happened with Saul. So in chapter 18, the, this, this uh, conflict between David and his son reaches its point as they go to, to battle against one another. Um, Absalom and his army are defeated by David, and Absalom, Absalom dies, and the Lord delivers Absalom into the hand of David through Absalom's listening to poor counsel. So he doesn't take the advice he should have, and because of that, he is, he is killed. Again, uh, like David lamented the death of Saul, and he de- lamented the death of Abner, who was the commander under Ishbosheth, Saul's son, uh, he now laments the death of his son Absalom. He's not gloating over these things. This is a different kind of man with a different kind of heart. Chapter 19, David mercifully pardons those who had sided with Absalom. So instead of being vengeful, right, he's, he's gracious. Then in chapter, the final chapters here, chapters 21 through 24, we see David's devotion to the Lord. Um, some, I didn't pull it out real clearly, but there is kind of a chiasm here. If you chiasm, you have a like an A, A, B, B, C structure. So the beginning and ending stories are similar. The two in the middle are similar. And then there's one central point. These chapters are kind of laid out that way. That was just for free. I didn't even have, my, have that in my notes. But I like chiasms in Scripture. They're really kind of cool to, to see. Uh, but in these last chapters, it shows the Lord's judgment against Israel in two separate accounts. And we see David sin again, but the Lord is... Uh, he continues to worship the Lord, and the Lord is still faithful to his covenant, even though his covenant people fail, 
David fails. The first scene is in chapter 21. There's a famine that comes upon the land. Um, and this is a judgment because of sins done by Saul in oppressing the Gibeonites, is what we read in chapter 21. So uh, the famine stops when seven sons of Saul, uh, let's see, no, it's uh, there would have been seven of Saul's grandsons are executed, so there's a vengeance served out here. Um, and then there's a scene where they go and they dig up the bones of Saul and Jonathan and go bury the seven grandsons and Saul and Jonathan. And then the, David cries to the Lord to let the famine subside, and it does. So kind of an interesting scene, right? Um, the second scene is in chapter 24, another scene of judgment. Uh, the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. doesn't tell us why that happens. Uh, but David is incited to number the people to see how many men of war he had. Okay? Um, now, this was a wrong desire because it was presumably like uh, the desire of the nation back in 1 Samuel 8 to be like all the other nations, right? I want to have a large army. I want to uh, be like all these other, other nations. And it shows a lack of dependence upon Yahweh to go out and fight their battles. My army's big enough to defend myself. Um, now, it's interesting. It says in... Uh, Oh, the first verse, 24.1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number, the, the, go number Israel and Judah. Now, it says there that the Lord incited David to do this thing. So again, this is one of those, like the Lord regretting passages where there's a little bit of confusion. So I just want to, we started late, so I can go a couple minutes longer, right? Right, we're, all, we're almost done. You can see the end of the book, okay? Uh, uh, so here it says that the Lord incited, in First Chronicles, which we'll get to, that'll be the last book we covered, it says that Satan incited uh, David. So what I think we have here, and, and uh, Jim Hamilton pointed this out, is that the Lord allowed Satan to incite David, just like he did Job, right? The Lord allowed Satan to go and to... Uh, afflict Job. So nothing happens outside of the Lord's uh, will, but yet the Lord is not the author of sin, right? Uh, James brings that out very clearly, that God tempts no one to, to sin, but each is led away by their own desires, okay? But what happens though in verse 10, David realizes he sins like he did with Bathsheba. He repents, Okay, the Lord says, uh, however, judgment's going to come upon you and you can choose one of three options. Three years of famine, you can flee for three months from your enemies or you can have three days of pestilence. And David here, his response is uh, a dependence upon the Lord. He says, let me not fall into the hand of men. Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, who's merciful and just. All right, so that's the, the proper response. He says that in twenty four fourteen. Um, so the Lord's destruction comes upon Jerusalem, and David, again, his heart uh, his, towards the Lord is right. He cries out to the Lord, um, and he says, don't let your judgment fall on these people, but rather let it fall on me and on my house, okay? Um, and then in between, the, so the Lord stops this judgment, and you see in 2418, uh, that, that where the judgment stopped, this threshing floor, David goes and buys that, and he will eventually, that will be the site of the tabernacle, 
right, where the Lord's mercy uh, was was seen in the stopping of this plague. In between, though, in chapter 22 and 23, we see David's final words in this song of praise. Just a couple of things to note. Look at verse 20 of chapter 22. The Lord has delighted in David and made him into what he is. So he's, uh, he's extolling the greatness of Yahweh and his placing him on the throne. Verses 23, 26 and 28, the Lord is merciful. So David has founded himself on the mercy of God, right? That's what, let me not fall into the hand of man. Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, right? For he's merciful. Verse 32, there's no other God other than Yahweh. Verse 44, the Lord has kept David as king. And then verse 51, the Lord shows steadfast love to David and his offspring forever. So there he's specifically recounting that covenant that the Lord has made to him. Okay, so the book of Samuel is important, right? Because it's moving the history of Israel forward. And it's now identifying really the hopes of the nation in the lineage now of the descendants of David, right? That, that covenant is, is moving forward and the hopes of the nation rest in David. And ultimately, as we saw this morning in Matthew 1, who comes from the line of David has the right to the throne? Jesus, right? So that's where we are, we are moving to. Jesus will come and, you know, it said of David, he was a man after God's own heart, but Jesus was the perfect man, the right heart, who never sinned, always did what was right.